If you have a Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to open it up to Acts chapter 17 and also uh, put a pin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 uh, as well. If you don't have a Bible, there will be, the text will all be on the screen for you. But I also want to use this opportunity to put in a simple plug for all of us. Uh, there are many believers around the world who don't have access to a Bible. And we have access to almost an unlimited supply uh, of Bibles. So even though it is on the screen, I do encourage you, when you come to church, I'd encourage you to bring your Bible with you. Whether it's a digital copy or a written copy, that doesn't matter to me. But, but it's a privilege that we have to be able to study God's Word from a book that is, is ours. Uh, and if you're here this morning or, or watching online and you don't have access to a copy of the Bible, if you contact the church office, we'd be glad to get you one. Uh, we believe God's Word is important in our lives, and, and we would be happy to provide that uh, for you. So this morning, we're going to be talking uh, about praying for the persecuted church. Uh, and I'll be the first to admit that sometimes when we think about something like this, it's, it's a very overwhelming task. We, we think of all the things that we could be praying for and, and, and all the difficulties that, that are happening in the world around us, and, and it can just be mind-boggling and a little bit overwhelming. And so maybe sometimes you, you might find yourself just being tempted to be like, okay, Father, and just I pray for all of the, the persecuted brothers and, and, and just bless them, and, uh, and not really knowing how to exactly pray for them. And that's especially hard to not know how to pray for them if you have no information about what is going on in the world around us. So first and foremost, I'd encourage you to, to do some research, to be informed, to be paying attention to what is going on in the world around us. I believe that God calls us to be world Christians. We should be mindful of the, the fact that God is, is calling to himself people from every tribe and language and tongue and nation, to be worshipers around his throne for all of eternity. And that when people do that, when people are called into that relationship with Christ, they're going to be in direct opposition to the world around them. And so they're going to be facing persecution, and they're going to be facing struggles. And we should be informed about what is going on. Otherwise, it's just so easy to fall into that trap of, of praying like a child prays and saying, you know, Lord, bless the missionaries everywhere. And that's okay for a child to pray that way. But I believe that God wants us to go deeper than that. And so we're going to look at an example from Scripture of, of how I, I, I hope that we can be encouraged by, by placing our, our, our faith in God and demonstrating our ultimate belief in, in His ability to take care of all of these persecutions that we see taking place in the world around us and knitting our hearts together with our brothers and sisters in christ who are, are facing some great difficulties in this world or maybe you're here and listening this morning that and you're a relatively new believer and you're not even sure how prayer even works out and and to, so to think about praying for the persecuted church around the world might be especially overwhelming to you maybe you're just here this morning and you're wondering you know does my prayer even really matter you know, why should I pray and, and what should I pray? Uh, so my hope is that the example that we see from the Apostle Paul as he writes to the persecuted church in Thessalonica will encourage all of us. And see, Paul has a, a very uh, exclusive uh, perspective and unique perspective because he was once one of the greatest persecutors of the early Christian church. So he knows what it means and it feels like to be on that side of persecution. Before he was miraculously saved and then became a missionary to the Gentiles, Paul was a great persecutor of the, of the brothers. But then when God saved him, he also understood and understands what it means to be persecuted for the sake of 
Jesus. He was beaten and imprisoned and shipwrecked and mocked and put under house arrest for the sake of the gospel. And he's writing to a church that understands that as well. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And, and hopefully we can be reminded that much of the New Testament is written while Paul was facing some kind of persecution, whether house arrest or imprisonment uh, or, or something along those lines. And, and he's writing to people who know what it means to endure the hardships of persecution. And Paul also is a man that understands and knows and cares intimately about intercessory prayer. More than 42 times, he, he just breaks out an inter, intercessory prayer for one of the churches that he's writing to, or asks them to pray for him. But I think it's, a little, it's helpful for us to have a little bit of background on, on what persecution really looks like. Because sometimes we can get confused by what persecution really looks like. And so our first point this morning is this. I want us to have a biblical pattern of persecution. And we're going to get that pattern from Acts chapter 17. Now, I actually preached about this a few years ago, so we're just going to quickly go through it. But I think it's important for us to kind of have this pattern of persecution in our minds. So starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 17, we read, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the whole world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were dis disturbed and when, they heard these, when they heard these things. And when they had taken money and security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. You see... We, we need to understand that while this is in the early church, there is great persecution that takes place in our world around us. But I want us to be able to distinguish the difference between persecution and just general suffering. This is an example of persecution. But, but let's be honest, in our fallen, broken, sinful world, people all around us every day face suffering in their lives. Both believers and non-believers lose their jobs sometimes. Both believers and, and non-believers may have something stolen from them. Both believers and non-believers get, get life-threatening illnesses or have someone they love die of cancer. Those are examples of suffering, but that's just because of the fallen, broken, sinful world that we live in. But, but we need to understand that persecution is specifically... Suffering for the name and sake of Jesus. When we take an, a stand for the cause of Christ, and we face opposition as a disciple of Jesus, that is persecution. And as Dean prayed, we should understand that the world is going to hate us because they hated Jesus also. He told his disciples that they should expect that. So that's how we distinguish between normal suffering and Christian persecution. And I think Voice of the Martyrs is helpful when they provide a, a little equation for us. They say Christian faith plus a persecutor plus an attack 
equals persecution. If you want to know what persecution looks like, Acts 17 shows us this. In verses 3 through 4, we see that Paul spends three days explaining the gospel. The gospel was important to Paul. It was everything about his life and ministry. Because he knew what it was to be miraculously changed by Jesus, he spent his time proclaiming to others, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He had to suffer and die for our sins. To be raised again, raised again so that we could have forgiveness and know God's grace and mercy. You see, Paul's Christian faith meant that he was going to be boldly proclaiming and taking a stand for the gospel. And that kind of Christian faith will bring people that oppose it. And so then you add a persecutor. In Acts 17, we see that these were some of the Jews and the Jewish leaders. But not only was it the Jewish leaders, what they did is they, they went out and about and they found people that were, you know, this angry mob and, and kind of got them all whipped up so that they would oppose uh, the, the Christians in the area. And that's oftentimes what happens is, is, is we have people who want to be opposed to the gospel message, who are opposed to God's word, who are opposed to the gospel, and then they get others who want to be opposed to God as well. Because they don't want to understand and to, and to believe that God's word is true. And so they oppose it. And how do they oppose it? Well, they attack. And those attacks can look different in many different ways. In Acts 17, it was because they were stirred up because of jealousy initially. But then they, they cause an uproar. They cause some rioting. They bring them before the courts and they make lies up about them. And then ultimately, they try to extort them. They say, you know what, you pay us some money, and then you're going to understand that you know, if we take control of your pocketbook, then you'll be silent and you'll stop talking about this gospel that you keep proclaiming and this Jesus who you call the Messiah. You see, that's what persecution looks like. Because of their bold stance for Christ, they were a, group, a group of people were opposed to them, and they were attacked. It's not just general suffering. It's suffering because of their faith and their stance for Christ and their proclamation of the gospel. Richard Wormbrand has a quote that distinguishes between Christians where he says this, There were two kinds of Christians, those who sincerely believed in God and those who just as sincerely believed that they believe. You can tell them apart by their actions in decisive moments. When the world turns up the pressure... When the world cranks down on, on someone who claims to be a Christian, that's when you can really see whether they're a believer or not. When the persecution rises, do they continue to proclaim the good news of Christ, or do they begin to step back and say, well, you know, I'm not sure that Jesus is worth dying for. So, so persecution, the whole purpose is to, to shut the mouths and stop the proclamation of the gospel. And those who are believers in Christ should rise to the occasion. And so that's who we are thinking about. That's who we are praying for. That's who we are going to look at. Because the church in Thessalonica was a church that was facing this persecution. Acts 17 is written about the church in Thessalonica. And so when we see what we're going to see in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, this is the context of which they are writing. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Hopefully you kept your finger there. Or you can quickly turn over. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Finally, brothers, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored, as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you 
and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Our second point this morning is Paul's prayer request of the church in Thessalonica. Now, there's probably some here this morning, and they go, aha, Chad made a typo. It was supposed to be Paul's prayer request for the church in Thessalonica, because they're the ones facing persecution. But that's not a mistake. Before Paul takes time to pray for the church at the end of chapter 3, Paul asks this persecuted church to pray for him and his ministry team. You see, it's important for us to see that, that the advancement in the ministry of the gospel is not dependent upon Paul. It's not dependent upon the church of Thessalonica. It isn't dependent upon you or upon me. It is completely, de- completely dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit in this world. And so, so Paul wants them to understand. It is, they have an important role to play. Because the church in Thessalonica and Paul are co-heirs with Christ just as we are. And the Apostle Paul doesn't take some position of superiority and say, you know what, Uh, I'm going to be praying for you because I'm the one who prays and you're the one who answers and responds. He doesn't take that position at all. He understands that all of us are dependent upon God's work in our lives for ministry to take place. And And it demonstrates this beautiful brotherhood that intercessory prayer can cause among believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's this authentic relationship of, I'm praying for you, and I ask that you would pray for me also, because we all need it. Now let's dig into some of the specifics of that prayer request. In verse 1, Paul says, Pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored. It is important for us to know right from the get-go that the number one concern that Paul always has is the gospel message. Paul's number one concern for the Thessalonians is that the gospel would continue to advance and speed ahead. He wants the first priority to remain, maintain, be maintained as the first priority in the church in Thessalonica. You see, Paul had, had moved away, much like when Dean prayed, sometimes when persecution happens, because Paul was there in Acts 17 and, and he escaped, but Jason and the others were left behind to face that persecution. Well, when Paul left, he continued to minister for the gospel. And so now, years later, we see him writing letters back to that church in Thessalonica. But he he says, everywhere I went, the gospel was sprinkled along the roads. And the gospel was seeded. And I want it to be, I want the gospel to speed ahead here, just as it did with you. So, So Paul starts with prayer for the gospel. And he prays that it would speed ahead. Now, I don't know about you, but... Have you ever been rolling through a, a neighborhood, going 25 miles an hour through, the, through a neighborhood, and you didn't see one of those signs that say speed bump ahead? You know, those speed bumps really aren't that big, but when you hit them, you know it, right? And, and, and so when you're going through and, and, and you see just this little speed bump, you know, oh man, I have to slow down. Well, the enemy wants to place speed bumps in the way of the gospel, and he wants to build big walls to make us to go around. And so Paul is saying to the church, you need to pray that the gospel would be able to speed ahead, that there would be no obstacles, that there would be nothing encumbering and holding back on the gospel of Jesus. And that should be our heart's desire, that the gospel would would be proclaimed and would be able to speed ahead. 
So we should ask, what are some of the obstacles that I can be praying that God would remove so that the gospel would be able to advance freely and speedily in some of these people groups? And when I hear about the opposition of certain groups, I should be praying about that. That those oppositional groups to the gospel would, would not oppose the gospel and in fact would get saved and come to know Christ. Because that's what we desire. We, we can't overcome those obstacles. We can't make the gospel speed ahead, but we should pray to the one who can remove those obstacles so that the gospel can continue to be proclaimed. But it's also important, he says, that the word of the Lord must speed ahead and be honored. I think it is very important that we understand, in, in not only in our culture, but in every culture around the world, we should be praying that God's word, his holy word, would be revered and understood that it is God's word. Because without the word of God, we don't have the gospel. There's a reason why when we train missionaries, we train them to translate the Bible into the language of the people. Because they need to hear God's word in their own tongue. And they need to honor it. You see, the Holy Spirit then will do the Holy Spirit's work and convict men using God's word that's, that's shared and proclaimed with them. But we should be praying that, that the word of God would be honored in their culture and that people would come to it to seek answers of the world and of God and, and of eternal destinations. We should be praying that God would do those things because we have full confidence, we should have full confidence, just like Paul, that, that when the word of God is proclaimed, it will be unbounded. In 2 Timothy 2.9, he writes to Timothy, he says, I'm, a, I'm a, 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 an agent of the gospel of which I am suffering. But I am bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. God's word is not bound. And so we should pray that it would speed into the culture, be honored by people, and that they would hear the good news of Christ and want to come to know Jesus as their Savior. It is a beautiful prayer that we can pray that God's word would be made readily available, in, especially in these areas where there's great opposition to the gospel. You and I can't make that difference, but God's word can change the eternal destination of those who hear it when the, when the Holy Spirit works in their life. So we should be praying for that to take place. But we should also be praying, as Paul says, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. Make no mistake, there are wicked and evil men in this world who want nothing more than to try to destroy the message of God's word and the message of the gospel and the message of the cross. And, and Paul says we should be praying that we should be delivered from them. Now this is sometimes complicated because in all honesty, we don't, we don't always know what that deliverance truly and honestly looks like. God may choose to answer this prayer in several different ways, and each answer could still be the will of God. God might answer it that those who are imprisoned by wicked and evil captors would be released from captivity. Praise the Lord if that happens, and if so, we should pray that their release advances the gospel message. But God might answer that those imprisoned by wicked and evil captors will be delivered up for torture, and they'll face the anguish of prison. And, and Yet they can do that with joy at God's assignment to them in their life. As, as difficult as that is for us to fathom, we should pray that their joy in suffering would advance the cause of Christ. And sometimes 
those who are imprisoned or being persecuted find that their life on this earth is put to an end. And while that is a horrible tragedy, and we should pray that those things don't happen, but when they pass from death to life, even the, the, the fact that they have suffered and given their life for the cause of the gospel can be used to advance the name of Jesus. So we should pray that their deaths glorify God and lead many to faith. And that, that, that God would comfort their families as only he can comfort them. We aren't God. So we pray to the God who can deliver and trust that however he chooses to deliver will be best. You know, it's sometimes easy for us to quote things like Philippians 1.21, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. And, and we write those things on our, on our walls and we write them on notebooks and we encourage ourselves with those things. But there are brothers and sisters in Christ that truly understand what it means to live for Christ and that death might be their gain. We should pray for them, that God would deliver them from wicked and evil men. Because we are committed to the promises of God. We are committed to a, a steadfast belief that we can trust in God. So, so those are the prayer requests that Paul shares with the church in Thessalonica. But now, we see Paul turn his attention a little bit. And he, and he goes from the prayer requests to the actual believers. And so we get a glimpse of Paul's heart for his persecuted brothers in Christ. You see, I think it's important that we don't just look at patterns and say, okay, if you pray this and this and this, then God's going to answer those prayers and our job is done. That's the way we should do it. If that's the way we are going to live our Christian life, that's really nothing more than legalism. And so Paul doesn't want them to legalistically to pray these rote prayers. He cares that they have the right motives and that they have the right understandings and that their heart is right before the Lord. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and steadfastness in Christ. Paul loves this church. Paul loves the people of Thessalonica. He doesn't want obligatory prayers. He wants their heart to be captured by their love for Jesus. And, God, and, and Paul knows that, that genuine believers have their heart just encaptured. In fact, the word that he uses there, direct, is from the Greek root that means to Lord, to be Lord or master of. So we could literally translate that verse, may the Lord enslave your heart, or may the Lord be Lord of your heart. You see, it helps us to understand the supremacy of God. Paul wants the Thessalonian church to understand the supremacy of God in all things. He is Lord, the Lord of lords. And then it also implies our submission to God and his plan for our lives, even if it involves suffering and persecution. And so Paul cares so much for them that he prays, may, may God just completely grab hold of your life and may your heart be committed completely and enslaved by him. Because I think that, that Paul understands this. When our heart is completely enraptured and wrapped up and enslaved to Jesus, when, when we are directed by God, it always leads to love. Always. 
When we are fully committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, it always leads to love. That's why verses like Romans 8.28, and we know that God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. We, we understand that, that because God is good, and, and when we love God with all of our hearts, that, that we can trust that he'll work all these things together for good. Even the evil that this world tries to put on us as believers. Even the persecution that they try to use to stop us in our proclamation of the, of the gospel. When we are caught up and in love with Jesus, it flows out in love for the world. Because we know that God is good. And in fact, that's, a, that's an old call and response that a lot of churches used to do. Somebody would stand up front and they'd say, God is good, and the people would say, all the time. All the time. Yeah. And why do we say things like that? We say that to remind ourselves that it does not matter what you are facing today. It doesn't matter what's going on in the Central African Republic. The goodness of God doesn't change. Because He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yes, these are difficult things. But God is the same. And we can trust Him. And we can trust in His goodness. So we must train our hearts. We must... We must understand and, and, and cause our hearts to be controlled by. We must direct our hearts to the fact that God is the supreme ruler and authority in my life and that he is good. Which leads us to the next point. When we truly love God, it always leads to steadfastness. Always. Committed Christians who love Jesus, are going to take a stand for the gospel message. Just like Paul. God's priority is going to be our priority. And we're going to put the gospel of Christ above ourselves. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Salvation puts me in a right relationship with God that I did not deserve. Salvation takes care of my sin because it was nailed to the cross and he took the punishment. And salvation now gives me purpose to live for Jesus. And our purpose is to, to tell the world about the living hope that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And it can't be taken away from us, no matter what someone may do to us. You see, Jesus is not only our example of steadfastness, He is the only one who can help us to be steadfast. That's why we fix our eyes on Jesus. He's the one that endured the cross. He's the one that despised the shame. He is the one that's seated at the right hand of God and has authority over all things. And so, so Paul concludes by challenging them with steadfastness because he understands how difficult suffering is. He understands what persecution really looks like. In all of this, Paul says, I want you to be so in love with God that the Lord will direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Stand firm, just as Jesus stood firm, enduring even to the cross. Now in all of this, I wish that I could tell you that the answer to our prayers is always sunshine and rainbows. But the reality is, is that that's not the world that we live in. And sometimes we don't ever see on this side of heaven the answers to our prayers. We don't know whether the Thessalonian church ever heard back from Paul regarding 
these prayers that they were praying for him. We don't know whether they ever heard back from Paul about the prayers he was praying for them. Sometimes on this side of eternity, we don't receive answers. But we who have faith in Christ proceed and continue to pray and continue to go to the throne of God's grace with confidence because we know that he hears us and we know that he is answering even if we don't hear those answers. You see, if we could just pray and have God immediately answer as if he was some kind of cosmic vending machine, then that puts us in the place of God. And instead, we are stepping back and saying, God, we trust you. And we pray to you. And we ask that you would build our faith. And we ask that you would build the faith of those that we are praying for. I think it's this unknown nature of prayer that, that, that keeps us sometimes from praying for the persecuted church. It's this unknown answers to prayer that sometimes prevent us from praying for our missionaries. Because we want to see we like to keep journals and say, I prayed this and God answered. But sometimes we're never going to see that. Especially when we're praying for somebody who knows Jesus on the other side of the world. On this side of eternity, we may not ever know those answers. But certainly, we can be aware that there is great need because there is great persecution taking place. And sometimes, sometimes God does allow us to see an answer to those prayers. Peter Yasek worked for the Voice of the Martyrs, helping and assisting persecuted Christians in hostile and restricted nations for about 20 years. He has a background in hospital administration, grew up in the Communist Czech Republic, and was equipped to serve the Lord. In December 2015, Peter's life changed dramatically when he was arrested at the airport in Khartoum, Sudan. After meeting with Christians there to evaluate how the Voice of the Martyrs could actually serve them, instead he found himself imprisoned with the families of other Christians and in need of assistance. Peter became a prisoner himself. So he reached out to the Voice of Martyrs and to other organizations for help. Eventually, the Czech government negotiated Peter's release after his conviction and life sentence on charges of espionage in February of 2017. Peter experienced times of great discouragement, but he also found God's faithfulness to be real and true in prison. He turned his imprisonment into an opportunity to grow in Christ and to share his faith with others and to encourage other believers who were locked up with him. During his 445 days in prison, he was sustained by the voice of the mother and other Christian organizations that stood with he and his family through prayer and other means of support. And so sometimes we're asked, we ask ourselves, does prayer really make a difference? Does it really matter? Peter answered this question by saying, The more I felt emotionally depleted in this prison, the more the Lord lifted me up through the restorative power of his word, through the healing presence of his spirit, and through the ministry he allowed me to have in my prison. I also knew that my church and other believers back home were praying for me and fasting for me. I had not been forgotten by them, and I had not been forgotten by God. And he closes with this. He says, I found myself right in the Lord's will and purpose. Imprisoned for 445 days, Peter was able to say, I felt completely supported and uplifted by my brothers and sisters in Christ who were praying for me. And I felt like I was right in the middle of God's will and purpose for my life. We don't always know why God allows these things. We don't always know how God is going to walk us through these things. But we can fervently pray 
for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are facing persecution and pray and ask them to pray for us also that we would be able to take a stand when that time comes. At this time, I'm going to close this in prayer and we'll come up and complete the song with a closing song. Let's pray. Oh, Father, in our limited knowledge and understanding, it is sometimes hard for us to know how to pray. So, Father, we pray, as the Apostle Paul directed, we pray that you would direct our hearts to the love of God and steadfastness in Christ. We pray that you would encourage other believers around the world who are suffering in persecution, that they too would be steadfast in taking a firm stand for the sake of the gospel. And Father, we pray that your word, that the gospel would speed ahead and that our hearts would be completely enraptured and enslaved and entrusted and directed by you. Father, we love you and we desire to see your name proclaimed to every tribe, language, tongue, and nation. And we know that to do that, we are going to have to face difficulty, persecution, and hard times. So Lord, we pray that you would prepare your church around the world to live for you and to understand that to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's in Christ's name that we pray.